1: Are we doing this? I'm told we're doing this. The CME has joined the Bitcoin revolution. Futures started trading last night. I understand Tom Keane was literally up all night looking for arbitrage opportunities. And he'll bring you the latest price for uh, Bitcoin futures in just a moment for more to get you up to spin on what's happening in dc though is carl weinberg the high frequency economics founder charged with divorcing his political biases from his economic <laughs> analysis dr weinberg great to have you with us on the program thank you for joining us thanks for having me talk to me about how tough that challenge has been this year
2: Well, you know, the high-frequency economics were divided. Jim O'Sullivan is the House Republican, and I'm the House Democrat. It's amazing, though, this year how many things we've agreed upon, which is unusual, but uh, it's been a very difficult time to separate uh, politics from uh, economics, that's for sure.
1: Talk to me about how you've parked your politics to one side of the room and just focused on the economics. What are you agreeing on?
2: Well, what we agree on is we have some skepticism about uh, stimulating the economy right now with unemployment so low with the risk of inflation so high. And uh, our house view at High Frequency Economics, and it's in Jim O'Sullivan's notes this morning, is that any stimulus to the economy at this point is probably going to move the Fed to hike rates a little bit faster than it otherwise would have. And that is an implication of this policy that's not being talked about in Washington, but one that we talk about at high frequency.
1: So do I think of next year as just the Federal Reserve kind of offsetting any overheating and that the potential for a mount-up, at least in the U.S. economy, is limited? I don't think
2: offsetting is a a fair way to talk about either their intention, you know, or what they're actually going to be able to do. I think the Fed, and Jim writes about the this in his daily notes today, um, uh, the Fed's job is to um, uh, keep the economy at full employment and to keep uh, inflation uh, 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 under control. And uh, anything that threatens that mandate is going to cause them to retract uh, stimulus from the economy sooner.
0: I just want to bring this up. Uh, these are two headlines that nobody cares about. But guess what? They're coming out back to back. And I think, John, it really speaks. To the tax legislation right on top of each other. Hershey confirms PAC to buy Amplify snack brands for $1.6 billion, tiny. Penn National to buy Las Vegas Pinnacle Entertainment for about $2.8 billion. But the news is they came out at the same moment here in the 702 hour. I, I mean, it just, it, it really speaks to, uh, John, the whole frenzy uh, that we might get into here. Uh, coming off tax legislation.
1: Is that what we're going to see, Carl, more M&A, more days of sitting here at 7 a.m. Eastern time and just reading out headlines of another acquisition?
2: You know, we just had a very interesting conversation on television where I asked this question, what are the Bob implications? Bob Kofusek
0: at Jones Day. Yes, yeah. where I,
2: I asked the question, you know, well, what is the implication of the tax code for M&A? And what he said really got my attention, and I know you're going to be talking to him again in a few minutes. He said, you know, well, what happened was that nothing stupid happened, so therefore a lot of deals that were on hold yeah. in anticipation that something stupid would happen, suddenly now are coming <clears throat> into play, are, yeah. are being realized. So, you know, maybe that's what the implication this is going to be, the absence of something bad. No, we start strong
0: in a Monday, Carl Weinberg with us with High Frequency Economics, and of course, Mr. Perfusak uh, will join us a bit on Fox, Disney, CVS, Aetna, uh and the rest of the ramifications for Global Wall Street. Bloomberg Surveillance this morning, as always, brought to you by Invesco. Learn how Invesco's pure focus on investing, diversity of thought, and passion to exceed can help you get more out of life. Visit Invesco.com slash More out of life. Uh, Again, the futures up nine. Uh, You know, John, I'm sorry. I'm on the Dow 25,000 watch. 24,809 on futures. Yeah. And the VIX crushing down. I mean, we're not to an eight handle, but 9.36 gets your uh, bull market attention. I I
1: I thought you were on CME watch today.
0: Yeah, I am sort of. I had the quote up. Uh, The Dow up 25%. 12 months that's year to date, excuse me. Let me do 12 months trailing. Forget about year to date. Let's do um uh one one year. There it is. The Dow up twenty-four percent, twelve months trailing, I think. Yeah. And uh S P up nineteen percent, twelve months trailing. Bitcoin up again, you pushed it higher, John, with your discourse. 19,216 on Bitcoin.
1: I understand on the CME, you're buying five Bitcoins per contract. So, I just. So the size of the contract is a lot bigger on the CME than the SIBO.
0: Yeah, I, I don't really understand it. I don't, you know. <laughs> I defer to Matt Miller in Berlin does, on that.
1: Does Carl Weinberg yeah. understand it? Does it make sense to you, Carl? You know, I'm old enough to remember dot-com
2: stocks, and I'm thinking that what we're seeing in Bitcoin is a lot like what we saw in, in the dot-com bubble and in other bubbles. I mean, people used to think that tulips had a lot of value, also. Uh, I just don't get it with Bitcoin at this point. It's Certainly, it's a very small part of the economy. It's a very small part of the market. It's a lot of excitement for the last week of the year when there's not a lot of news going on. But yeah. at the end of the day, I just don't see the fundamentals behind it.
1: As it becomes institutionalized, though, and lands on exchanges like the CBO and the CME... It- Is there risk that this bleeds if something goes wrong and bleeds out into other asset classes, or is it just still too small, Carl?
2: Well, first of all, we have no history to look back on to to see where this is going to go, so we're all just kind of speculating about where it's going. And it might get very, very, very big, but it seems to me that it has to be embraced by the big financial institutions, by the banking system, uh, to be useful. I think what I hear more talk about these days is talk about Uh, Central banks uh, starting to deal with digital currency rather than going adopting Bitcoin as their digital currency and going to digital versions of settlement and transactions in their own currencies. Now, we've heard two central bank governors say that that's not going to happen in the last couple of days, Australia and Canada. Yeah. But I I don't think that that's such a far-fetched idea. I think that's a much more likely possibility to gain traction than uh, Bitcoin, which is not backed by anything uh, coming out of being the Something new Something that
1: we've tried to question this program is where the regional activity for Bitcoin trading is really taking place. It seems to be really, really concentrated in Asia, in Japan, in South Korea. What's behind that, Carl?
2: I have no idea, and I honestly don't know how anyone has any hard statistics on any of this at this point. And certainly, we can't look back at the trends of the last ten or fifteen years and say, "Well, you know, this is how it went for this particular reason." Yeah. We're completely unexplored territory right now. And and uh, again, my view is 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 pretty firm about this. It's a very speculative currency. It's a very speculative commodity.
1: And Tom, that's something you've noticed as well. Just the activity I, I, in, in Japan, in South Korea, that's dominating yeah, trading.
0: If somebody said to me right now. What What's your major focus i would say korea i i'm trying to read everything i can and i can't say enough about tim culpin writing for bloomberg view right who has a fabulous almost visceral understanding of non-japan non-china
1: asia but are, oh, you, looking, are you looking type at, type at korea total. unfolding in the geopolitics or no. what are you looking at no
0: i'm looking at korea and the market frenzy it's cultural as carl mentioned it's cultural it's behavioral Um, I'm I'm curious about not only China, Japan, Korea, but the nuances between the three. And on this Monday morning with 19,222 on Bitcoin, let me tell you, folks, on a log chart, it's a moonshot. I'm most focused on Korea. I could be wrong on that, but that's where I am right now. Let me do a data check uh, here with Carl Weinberg. Uh, (coughs) Excuse me, futures up 10. Dow futures up 152. uh, Ten-year yield, uh, 2.37% up two basis points. So a lift of yields here as well. We did that within sharp curve steepening on Friday. Right now, um, the, the curve, 52 basis points, has recovered uh, nice I'm going to call it a churn to the market really here with gold up $4, dollars twelve sixty one dollars the ounce as well. John, what are you looking at? What's Sterling doing? Nothing,
1: right? Uh, it's, it's a little bit stronger against more broadly a, a weak dollar in G10 today. The dollar weaker against yeah. nine out of the 10 major currencies in the <clears throat> G10 space, and that's the right. story of the so, year as well. So can
2: I ask you a question, all right? If, if this tax thing is so good for the U.S. economy and everybody's so excited about it and so surprised about it, why isn't the dollar? stronger this morning.
1: I don't know, Carl. I think we seem to be trading on twin deficits. It feels like a very EM-type story to me, and I keep hearing that over the last couple of weeks as well.
2: I just just don't get the weakness (coughs) of the dollar right now. It seems like the dollar should generally be strengthening, and everything is against it, and I don't see why.
0: Carl Weinberg, thank you so much for being with us. He's with High Frequency Economics. I'm being incredibly rude here. You'd think John Farrow would bring in the United Kingdom Consul General to New York, without question the most important Britisher besides John Is that you apologizing to me? That's me apologizing uh, to you. But I'm going to ask one quick question here before John gets to important issues. Uh, Anthony Philipson with us. You just finished as High Commissioner to Singapore for the United Kingdom government. There is a primal wish of many Britishers to get the empire back. We're gonna be global trade. We're gonna do the empire back. What's it like to hear that talk when you visit the Shangi Cemetery near the Singapore airport or the cemetery to the north where so many Britishers died? How do you respond when you hear Brexiters say, we're going to bring the empire back?
3: Well, thank you very much indeed, and it's a great pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, That's not quite what the Brexiters are saying, and it's certainly not what the British government is saying. What we're saying is we're going to deliver a smooth, constructive exit from the European Union. We're going to deliver the the will of the British people, as expressed in the referendum in June last year. And then we're going to go and create a new free trading, yes, uh, buccaneering in the the words of some, yes. Buccaneering. Uh, But this is going to be based on partnerships. This is going to be based on forward-looking, the economy of the future, Uh, We're not looking back because we're very proud of our history, but lots of countries are very proud of their history. We're very proud of our old relationships, including especially with the United States. This is about looking forward, not looking back.
1: So naturally, Anthony, I have an English accent, so people always ask me in New York, what's going on with Brexit? And I should probably just say, call Anthony, because you're the guy that's got to turn around to people and tell them here what is actually happening with Brexit. So you tell us, what is going on? Because from the New York looking into Europe, it looks like a total mess. Well, we're engaged in a process that the Prime Minister kicked off when she sent her Article
3: 50 letter, as we call it, in March uh, this year. Uh, last week on Friday in Brussels, the uh, the stage moved on to a, a really significant moment where we, we concluded phase one, as we've called it, the withdrawal process. Um, it's going to be a long process from here, but we've made good progress. Uh, and the reason why this is significant is uh, there are lots of people commenting on Brexit. Yeah. Um, we haven't given a running commentary on the negotiations quite deliberately, uh, but Friday was a significant moment and I think that was recognised in statements from the Prime Minister it was recognised in statements from uh, Donald Tusk the President of the Council and from Jean-Claude Juncker the President of the Commission and indeed other, other European leaders. Now we move on to the next phase of discussion starting uh, crucially with the question about how we start talking about the future trade partnership and then we start talking about how we implement that agreement between us moving forward
1: It looks like the UK is just going to be told what they're going to get rather than ask and receive. The, the feeling you get through phase one is that the UK didn't really achieve any concessions from the European side whatsoever. What concessions do you think the UK did get from the European Union and what do you think they're going to get in phase two?
3: Well, I think if we look at phase one, this is we've always said it's going to be a negotiation. I would say that we achieved some very significant moments. We achieved a fair settlement Uh, on the issue of citizens rights both for EU citizens in the UK, UK citizens in the EU. We have always said that in terms of the financial settlement we would honour our commitments and what we did was we worked through in great detail with European partners what those uh, those commitments were going to be. And in the context of Ireland, which of course is crucial for the people of Northern Ireland, uh, we agreed that we would move forward in a way that would not return to the borders of the past. I don't think it's particularly helpful to look at concessions or wins or losses. This is about a negotiation, an agreed way forward and that's what we are doing.
1: There's a lot of banks here on Wall Street that I'm sure are asking you a lot of questions. What is going to happen with the relationship with the EU27 and the United Kingdom post-2019 and how are they going to continue to operate? Can they operate after 2019 in the same way they operated before 2019? So I think what I would say is that what they will be able to do is to operate in the City of London as
3: one of the great financial centres of the world, along, of course, with New York. They will continue to be operating in in a climate that will be... Uh, a, a a wonderful location for doing business with uh, with the European uh, Union, uh, then at 27. Um, one of the, uh, the former German finance minister himself said the other day uh, that what Europe needs is a strong London. They don't need to see yeah. London moving to other places. So the banks will be there.
1: Well, the banks will be... will be there. They won't go anywhere. And we all love London because London's fantastic. I love London, but I'd like to know if they're going to really? continue to have power sporting. Are they going to continue to have passporting? Will they get that concession from Europe? Because when we talk about concessions, I think it is important to know whether you get that concession from the EU for the city. What the negotiation will deliver
3: is a new set of arrangements between London and the Eurozone, and London and the EU at 27. That is exactly what we're about to work out. The Chancellor himself gave a speech uh, in the city the other day where he made clear that that is an absolute priority of the British government to deliver that new relationship. What exactly it looks like, we don't know. That's what the negotiation
1: will deliver. You've got a hard job. Anthony Philipson, the new UK Consul General to New York and Director General of International Trade, North America. Yeah. Tom Keane, you're forgiven. Thank no, you for just having just
0: me. Just <laughs> wonderful. We'd love to have you back for a longer time.
1: I would love to come uh, back.
0: To talk. There's just so much, so much to talk about uh, here. Uh, Consul General, thank you so much. Without further ado, we're going to continue with Robert Profusek of Jones Day. And I'm going to rip up the strict script because Bob Cinch just emailed in. Bob Cinch is an FX dollar guy. Is one of the outcomes of tax reform that foreign investment looks to come into the United States for complete acquisition or even for some kind of minority interest in American assets?
4: Uh, that's quite possible. The, the short-term impact has got to be stimulative. There's going to be money coming back by U.S. companies. It's... It, there's, a, there's going to be money But if closed. I'm
0: a European multinational, I mean, John, there's Unilever and they're doing spreads business, which I, you know, don't understand. If I'm a foreign company, do I want to bring money back into the United States and buy minority or majority interest?
4: Yes, you can, because it's just the, the rate differential is going to be different. <clears throat> exactly. And you don't have to go through this structure. I mean, if you look at the structure of many non-U.S. companies, you know, we're, we're real critical U.S. companies with inversions and stuff. Look at the other side. You look at their corporate structure. Looks like you opened the back of an old-time TV set. It was yeah. so
1: complicated to try to deal with this high U.S. tax rate. The dollar has had an awful year, Bob. And we often ask ourselves whether that really moves the dial for the C-suite. Do they sit there and say, over in Europe or in Asia, and say, look at the performance of the dollar. Things got cheaper. America's on sale.
4: For it- sure. Because in, that's a financing arbitrage if they're, you know— financing it from offshore they can do it and one of the things about again looking at it from the US perspective or the European bring more money back in there'll be more money here there's been a lot of i mean when you're the average ceo says i got two MA possibilities in the old days if one were offshore yeah. you did it because you wanted to use up that offshore cash
0: um bob i want you to define right now why 100 quadrillion dollars in private equity is different than a hundred dollars anywhere else. You look at pots of money. How do you treat private equity pots of money different?
4: Well, there is, that's about the right number for private equity. There's an amazing amount of capital that's been committed. When you look at the fundraising this year, it's. But it's been,
0: cash cash?
4: It's been astonishing. The difference is. They have to put that money, or they want to put that money to work. Now, that doesn't mean it's burning a hole in their pocket and they're going to do dumb deals. What's it mean? But it does mean they're in the deal business. Companies are in their business, and deals may be a part of it. Whereas a private equity guy, that is his business, is putting that capital well, but to am,
0: work. am I right? You know, Pick on KKR. There's a general partner. There's lots of limited partners, whatever, that put money in. They've got a big, big pot of money. And then do they pick an industry category and say, go – Review a hundred companies, and let's see which five we're going to bid for.
4: So the, uh, absolutely, there's some funds that are industry specific. The KKR's, yeah. the Blackstones, the big ones—they're yeah. more generic, but they do very yeah. often look at where things are going. Yeah, and you know, they're just like everybody else. They're things that are hot for a reason. Now, right now, I know this sounds kind of dumb, but. Right well, we now, like that it, it's hard to find an industry that's not hot in M&A. It really is. Well, again,
0: and again, John Farrow, three headlines in the last hour. Profusek driving the conversation. Yeah. Penn National to buy Pinnacle. David Wilson will have more on this. Hershey confirms they're going to buy Amplify snack brands. I don't even know what that is. Campbell's to buy. Snyder's Lance. Shout out to Mario Gabelli, who nailed that, as always.
1: I- I'm struggling to see why these companies need private equity financing at this point, when the debt market's wide open. When you think about when these companies were formed, Bob, the car labs of this world, KKR, the opportunity set in front of them at the time is very, very different to the opportunity set in front of them now. You've talked about them needing to put the cash to work. They're struggling to find places to put the cash to work, aren't they?
4: Yeah, they are. And one of the things they're doing, and many of them, in fact almost all of them, they're they're not just looking at traditional LBO Transactions. A lot of them are doing financing. Um, while the debt markets are fabulous, if you're below a triple B, not so good. It's hard to get money because of the pressure on the banks. So guess who shows up in that? Private equity. There, almost every private equity uh, firm now is doing alternative financings, so-called special situations, which usually means either distress or at least below investment grade. So they're doing everything else. They've got a lot of money to allocate, even though a lot of the major uh, PE uh, investors like the public pension funds and, the, and and the like have said they're dialing back, but they really haven't in the real world. They say it, yeah. but they. This is an asset class you can't pass up, and it's huge. I, I, I haven't I don't know the specifics, but I'm certain there are four or five fundraising efforts where. They raised over $10 billion.
1: The problem, though, Bob- When
4: KKR started out, if they could get to $500 million, that was a big
1: thing. The problem, though, is it starts from the top. Investors are looking cross-asset right now, and they're looking at opportunities, and they're struggling to find strong returns, even in high yield, where you get, what, 5% now, historically, incredibly low. So they're sitting there, and they're saying, where can I put my money? Let's give it to someone else and let's give it a private equity, and hopefully they can come up with a better idea. So their access to cash is absolutely fine. They've got loads of it. They just don't know what to do with it, do they? And you raised the point about alternative financing. Is the future for PE, in a much bigger way, just an alternative financing bank?
4: It could be. It's it's like almost everything in today's world. A world of transparency and instant information, it means so many things are converging. I mean, think about, think about Goldman Sachs. Yeah. It isn't everything today, right? I mean, 20 years ago, it was an investment bank. It's Everything is converging. Now, does that mean we're all doing the same things? No, not really. Um, It's different. It's very difficult to get below investment grade credit from a, a traditional bank. It's not very difficult to get it from private equity.
1: From the investor's standpoint, is this also an opportunity to get exposure to a market that typically is difficult for you to get? And what I mean by that is many of these new technology companies aren't going public. The opportunities aren't in public markets at the moment. They're in private markets. And they're kind of staying there, Bob. They're not going public. Is that the way PE is thinking about the situation now from the investor's standpoint? Give the money to them and they can get me exposure to these yeah, things. Yeah. And
4: that's, and that's the convergence, believe it or not. That's, I guess, the only word I have. But that's yeah. the convergence between VC In private equity investing, there is a convergence of everything on that score.
0: I I look at this, and I I look, again, at the frenzy. And a lot of our listeners, our viewers on TV, I got a couple emails on this. It seems almost like it's just all for the corporate class. How does labor end up within the broader sense of transactions in America?
4: Well, labor is very often... um, because synergies, in in labor's view, and I'm not sure it's all that incorrect. And I don't mean you synergies, blue
0: collar labor. I mean labor, popping 185 a year, oh, yeah. 320 a year, and all of a sudden it's like, oops.
4: Yeah, because synergies is a different word for, or is a nicer word for job cuts. Very often, mm. it, rationalization is another word for job cuts. On the other hand. You know, if your business isn't performing, even without MA, they're going to be job cuts. We see that every time there's a, mar- uh, mm-hmm. a, a market break. Uh, break. I saw that, you know, think about publishing, mm-hmm. the actual publishing business today. Well, there have been deals here. Time Warner, obviously, is huge, but you know, Time, Inc., uh, being acquired by Meredith. <clears throat> but if you don't do that, what are you going to do? You're going to have layoffs. Quick,
0: quickly, were you involved in the Alstom General Electric transaction? Yes. You were involved. Yeah, can I can, you
4: cannot comment on that one. You
0: cannot comment on that one. Darn it. <laughs> John, would you like to comment? Uh, I would love to. Michael no, Barr, would you, you like to you comment me. on G.E. Alstom?
1: Uh, I would love to. Yes, okay. okay. <laughs>
0: Bob said, <laughs> thank you so much. Greatly uh, appreciate it with Jones today. I was going to ask about... Uh, a challenging transaction, it appears, for General Electric. We greatly appreciate him with this. Am I getting out of this as smoothly as I can, You China? are. You've done a good job. I Thank would just you.
1: say that the politics in <clears throat> Europe has changed so much in the last couple of years, whereby the European politicians are now willing to allow a big player in Germany to get together with a big player in France in a way that maybe they wouldn't have done in the past because yeah. they know that the future is not competing France against Germany. It's competing Europe no. against China in a much, much bigger way. And I think that's the change for me this year in Europe whilst we've seen some of these deals come through, is that the Germans and the French are allowing these big companies where they had a state interest, a special right. interest, to actually get together.
0: Okay, well, very good. Bob I thank you so much. I've been really looking forward to this interview. Jared Bernstein is a wonderful economist, I'm going to say with a tilt to the Democrats, tilt to the left, worked for Vice President Biden. But he has such respect that uh, all Republicans, all conservatives at each and any time listen to Mr. Bernstein uh, with the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Jared, um, I looked at your website. And you go where any good lefty kind of center on budget and policy priorities. Will you talk about the child tax credit and this 100% Jared of the conversation I had this weekend was on state and local taxes. Do you people yet have anywhere in the vicinity of how low of income level married where the state and local tax disadvantage is tangible? Is it, Obviously, it's like six hundred thousand, five hundred thousand household income, but yeah. I, I'll bet it's a lot lower number. Do we have any clue where it is yet? I don't know that number. Uh, it's different for every state,
5: but it is true. Somebody showed me some numbers for West Virginia that uh, uh, showed that that did uh, the loss of that exemption does cut uh, for some. Uh, does hit some lower-income families, uh, especially those who, by the way, end up paying more sales tax than income tax, which happens sometimes. That said, the bulk of those uh, uh, exemptions uh, typically benefited those in the top uh, uh, part of the income scale. You know, there's another concern there, which is, uh, that's germane to folks like us at the Center on Budget, which is that we, we believe that one of the reasons states are able to raise revenues in order to do the things that they want to do, which in some of these blue states tend to be sort of anti-poverty kinds of things, has to do with the ability to exempt right. those taxes. So, so the loss of that could impact states' ability
0: to sustain right. those programs. That's right where I wanted to go, is a, what folks, economists like uh, Dr. Bernstein call a second-rounder, second-order effect. Right. The massive second-order effect is Governor Cuomo, Governor... Governor... Governor Christie or whoever follows on, Governor Brown out in California in 20 other states, they're going to have to change their actual intrinsic budgets, aren't they?
5: They probably will, because not only will it be a challenge for them to sustain their tax systems now, people are going to look at their 2019 filings in April and recognize that they can no longer exempt some of their state and local payments from their federal liabilities, but if they decide they wanted to raise revenues to engage in uh, maybe expand their earned income credit or uh, even do uh, an infrastructure uh, build-out, that that constraint uh, is going to be a new one for them.
1: Jared, there was a story a a number of months ago where a a well-known hedge fund manager, a very rich individual, left New Jersey and left a hole in the budget. The affluent are bound to leave to what extent do the affluent leave these states?
5: Well I'm glad you asked me that, because there's a very good article on page A2 of the Wall Street Journal, which uh, purports to answer that question. And the answer is, it's not zero, but it's not large. I think one study suggested that New York City could lose 2 to 4 percent of its most affluent folks. There are so many amenities in these cities, New York, San Francisco, that taxes are just one of the variables that keep you there, and it depends on your age and where you are in your career, Uh, to the extent that there'll be some uh, out-migration. I think it will be small.
1: I had a conversation for the first time just last week about what would happen to municipal bonds from these states and whether actually we could face a serious problem in the coming years. Are you saying, Jared, that actually you don't foresee that happening? The affluent will not go, there will not be a budget problem in the coming years for some of these states?
5: I don't think you're going to see anything like that happen in the next few years. As I said a, a second ago, though, there is the possibility that you start to see some pressure from more affluent taxpayers because they can no longer, uh, they can no longer uh, exempt their uh, state and local payments against their federal liabilities. And, you know, three, four, five years, that could, that could start to pressure state budgets, no question.
1: What are the odds, though, Jared, that state and local taxes actually get cut in some of these states
5: well, I think that the odds are more that they don't get raised than they get uh, than they get cut. Uh, the, you know state budgets aren't in in great shape. Uh, they're still, uh, looking at rainy day funds. And, and remember, there's a recession out there somewhere. And I think, especially given the fiscal conditions at the federal level, uh, a lot of anti-recessionary kinds of spending is going to fall on the state no. level. So I think they want to build up their rainy day funds and, and keep their tax structure in, in as, as, as in, uh, intact as they can for the near term.
0: Now let's come back with Jared Bernstein against Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. The analysis of this tax legislation now unsigned will be just extraordinary. And, you know, my amateur take is, uh, John, it's a complete mystery for every single American uh, as we go into the end of the year. We'll try to get some clarity with Dr. Bernstein, Senior Fellow of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast.